Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Warning. This podcast contains discussions of violence and sex. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to a special Haunting Season episode of Something Wicked, a bonus series from the Three Ravens podcast all about historical monsters, maniacs and murderers from across the world of folklore. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive, and I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and all dark arts. Eleanor Conlon. Hello, fellow Ravens. <laughs> well, we are getting very close to the end of haunting season, and this is the grisly end uh, where we're getting our beaks into some honest-to-goodness flesh and blood. Quite right. And on this episode, we're talking about our most modern kind of folkloric true crime to date. This one reaching a grisly conclusion in the year of my birth, 1984. It really is incredibly modern by three <laughs> Ravens standards. We're normally a bit more comfortable talking about 1584. True. Then Again, the 1980s are very much the era of the satanic panic, which we talked about a bit the other day on yep. the Ouija episode, which suggests to me that there are rich veins of particularly modern American folklore for us to mine. Well, indeed. And if people aren't familiar with the satanic panic, Eleanor, I know you're very interested in this period of American history. If I were to challenge you to neatly summarise what the satanic panic was... How would you explain it? Oh, okay. Challenge accepted. Um, (laughs) So the Satanic Panic probably started in 1980 with the publication of a very lurid book called Michelle Remembers. Mm. And in this book, a psychologist claimed to have helped his patient, a lady named Michelle Smith, to recall her vivid experiences of abuse by the Church of Satan that she had apparently been keeping as a kind of suppressed memories for Mm. many years. It's immediately really important to say that Michelle Remembers has been widely discredited and uh, the type of psychology used to supposedly unearth these memories has also been discredited and that her claims have been completely unsubstantiated. 
it didn't stop the book being wildly successful and kicking off this whole cultural moment. Yeah, I mean, if you want to learn more about it, check out the recently released documentary Satan Wants You. It kind of chronicles the whole sordid affair. But off the back of Michelle Remembers, there was a rush of allegations of satanic influences, ritual abuse and all sorts of awful things across America during the 1980s and into the 1990s. Mm, yeah. And when I say rush, I really mean it. There were over 10,000 reported cases of SRA, as it was known. <laughs> that stands for Satanic Ritual Abuse. Mm. Although when it's all said and done, the actual evidence for most of these cases is next to nothing. Now, people will no doubt be familiar with the panic about Dungeons and Dragons being a kind of gateway to satanic worship. <laughs> um, that was part of the satanic panic, as were loads of like heavy metal bands, um, plus lots and lots of interlinked conspiracy theories which were all brought up, including things like MK Ultra and government cover-ups by the CIA, mind control experiments, and wide-scale accusations of child abuse that kind of echoed the McCarthy hearings of the 1950s. Exactly that. And I think today a lot of the popularity of the QAnon movement is rooted in almost identical sets of conspiracy theories, mm. moral panics, outrage and so on things like pizzagate yeah yeah now as eleanor said there were over ten thousand alleged incidents as part of the satanic panic and although much of what swirled about and through the satanic panic was frankly absolute bunkum there were some things that happened during that period which were pretty ghastly and horrific which were kind of caught up in the media furore yeah it's one of those interesting things isn't it because although the church of satan isn't likely to have sat behind very many nasty things that happened in the 1980s yeah. or before or after <laughs> when this kind of moral panic breaks out almost anything can be swept up into it yeah exactly right and it helps that this particular case was based very very much on an old urban legend or folk tradition which goes back to at least as early as the Industrial Revolution, that legend being of what's generally called the Mad Poisoner. Oh, and well now we're really cooking with diesel. <laughs> <laughs> For those unfamiliar, the Mad Poisoner trope or idea is very much in the Three Ravens wheelhouse because it's inextricably linked to industrialization. Yeah, precisely that. So in case you haven't heard of it, the idea of the Mad Poisoner, which is a bit of a catch-all term, but still... It's all about this move which took place across Western society where people stopped so much making food for themselves and their families and started buying mass-marketed food, which was ready-made, prepared by someone else. And this, again, has roots in real-life horrible goings-on in that during the late 1700s and afterwards, when people were moving away from agrarian lifestyles and towards factory work, lots of products which were mass-produced were most definitely poisonous. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, famously, lead was very commonly used in paint, for example, including children's toys. So children would get new toys, put them in their mouths, as children are wont to do with everything. <laughs> yeah, objects clothing, bits of people, rocks, unsuspecting insects. I knew a kid who used to lick snails at primary school. I would say that's gross, but I, I did eat a worm once. Did you? Child. Yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> earthworm. Well, I actually, as a little boy, was very interested in putting gravel in my mouth. Not sure why, but there is photographic evidence of Probably me did you eating gravel. Good. <laughs> Built up your immune system, <laughs> <Probably>. you know. <laughs> but in terms of the Industrial Revolution, there were regular and justified scares about poisons and toxins being included in the first mass-produced food. 
kinds. So what kinds of things? And sorry for asking, but I'm trying to imagine what kinds of things were poisoned? Well, I mean, loads of things. But a very common one was bread, where things like alum or ground bones or clay, lime and plaster of Paris were all added to bread. Oh, yeah, that's so disgusting. Uh, why is that? I assume uh, lime and plaster of Paris to make the bread whiter. Well, and that's yeah. more appealing to buy. Is it that- basically is to bulk out the food. So, you know, a lot of these things were cheaper than, say, using wheat. Oh, no, so it's kind of like cutting cocaine with <laughs> yeah, sugar. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly the same. So the practice was called adding molten. That's M-A-L-T-U-M, meaning more. So you would add molten, more stuff, basically, to pad out your products. And this kind of thing happened a lot, including famously to the first ice creams, which were often made using poisonous water, sometimes sewage water, as well as in particular sweets, which connects to the mad poisoner trope or meme in particular. That makes sense, I suppose. Well, the 19th century was a time when sweets were mass produced properly, wasn't it? And in our Yorkshire episode during series two, you talked about Joseph Roundtree. And we spoke in a Lancashire episode about the Victorian era invention of jelly babies. Yeah, exactly. And all sorts of horrible things were added to lots of different sweets during this period, culminating in the 1858 Bradford sweet poisoning. Well, this I've never heard of. <laughs> well, it's super interesting. And basically came about when 200 people in Bradford in Yorkshire were poisoned after eating humbugs, so traditional black and white striped peppermint sweets. Only the sweets they ate were laced with arsenic, which had been added as molten by mistake, with 21 people dying dozens being extremely ill and the whole incident leading in part to the passing of the Pharmacy Act to regulate the control of many poisons and opiates in England. Goodness, that's so fascinating. I mean, bear in mind, like well into the 20th century, you could go to the chemist's and buy poison for getting rid of pests like oh, rats. For sure, you? yeah, yeah. You buy arsenic, you buy cyanide mm-hmm. just over the counter. Definitely. But, you know, outside of these kind of historical poisoning incidents, which were mostly accidental or down to corruption and fraud, ideas began to develop around the concept of people deliberately setting about lacing foods with poisons in an attempt to do damage to and perhaps even kill members of the public. I was reading just a few weeks ago, actually, that a man was arrested for sabotaging food products in a factory Mm. which were intended for the restaurant chain Nando's. And he was putting all kinds of horrible things in in the food, like rubber gloves and um, plastic bags in vats of hummus and batter and stuff. (sighs) Really quite disgusting. That's interesting. He has been arrested. Like (laughs) corporate espionage. Yeah. Mm. And so when we think about the mad poisoner in the 20th century, Of course, there are loads of urban legends, but are there any cases when people have actually set about trying to sell or spike food that other people are going to sell or give out and doing harm? Well, in terms of those that have led to deaths, no, which might seem surprising. It does, because in a whole world of people, you've got to imagine there's some lunatic out there doing this sort of thing. I mean, we've just seen an example. Yeah, well, I mean, the closest we've had is in 1959, a dentist in California did roll Halloween candy in laxatives before giving it out to children. And he was quickly arrested and charged, but there's no recorded case of members of the public being actually poisoned by foods that have been tampered with. What we do have, though, are cases of people trying to hurt or potentially kill 
family members. So members of their own family, that's much more common. But the laxatives thing, well, while it's obviously unpleasant, it strikes me as more of a prank than a serious attempt to do genuine harm. Mm. I mean, laxatives won't kill you. No. They'll just uh, really clean things out for you. <laughs> <laughs> but it also surprises me that there hasn't actually been a mad poisoner in the sense that popular culture has maybe made us believe. Well, indeed. And that's not to say that there haven't been mass poisonings. There have, especially in pharmaceuticals with people lacing over-the-counter drugs. So, for example, in 1982, there was the Chicago Tylenol murders, an incident where someone, they never actually caught the person who did this, but someone laced Tylenol tablets with potassium cyanide and killed seven people. But when it comes to sweets in general and Halloween candy in particular, there's never been a recorded case of a quote-unquote mad poisoner. This is obviously good news, but it, it seems so strange in a way that this has never happened. Well, yeah, and you mentioned urban legends. So when you think about these mad poisoner antics, what kind of examples of urban legends jump to mind for you? Well, the obvious one and the one I think uh, most of us think of with Halloween candy is the thing we always warned about as kids, the yeah. old razor blade in the toffee apple. Yeah, and that very much comes from a film. 1988 Night mm -hmm. of the Demons, which came out during the Satanic Panic era. And of course, there are other variations of that, you know, broken glass and sweets or cake, pins, poisoning things, all that kind of yeah. stuff needles, that we were warned we about when going trick-or-treating. Yeah, which, you know, interestingly, it's, it's a combination of two kind of separate memes, which both culminated in the 1980s. The first being urban legends related to food contamination. So, you know, famously the Kentucky Fried Rat or Dead Mouse in a Soda Can or Bottle. And then also lots of things about food service workers putting unsavoury things into mayonnaise or onto pizzas. And, you know, people catching herpes, for example, from things that they've eaten. Now, those grew through the mass expansion of fast food restaurants in America in particular during the 70s and into the 80s. Then this this other meme generally known as Halloween sadism. It's a very solid term, Halloween sadism. What does that relate to? <laughs> well, it's a well-observed sociological trend. And when I say trend, I mean belief rather than a thing that actually happens. But basically, in the 1930s, say, Halloween trick-or-treating, i.e. knocking on strangers' doors and asking for sweets, was seen as pretty innocent fun. But during the 1950s and the kind of advent of the teenager as a concept, that increasingly changed in America to involve more pranks and increased emphasis in the trick part of trick-or-treat. And then, during the kind of mass expansion of social housing, apartment blocks and so on, which happened during the 70s and into the 80s, America underwent what might generally be called urban decay, with lots of towns and cities becoming slightly scarier, more anonymous, and people started to believe it was far more likely that if children went trick-or-treating, then they might meet someone who would be sadistic or nasty. So someone who'd shout at their children, maybe expose themselves, behave violently or rudely, or potentially do them harm. So Halloween sadism is basically the belief that on Halloween, people will be nasty to children who knock on their doors. Yeah, in short. Yeah. Um, but again, it's important to say that this is a belief rather than an actual trend because this has genuinely been studied. And it turns out that basically Halloween sadism is a belief, but not an actuality. Like there are under 100 observed cases where people have actually been unkind to trick-or-treaters. And yet, Mark, 
Martin, you've set us all up for a Something Wicked episode <laughs> about someone called the Candyman. Yeah. So I'm guessing there has to be some truth in all this somewhere. Well, you'll note that a few minutes ago I mentioned how there are no real recorded cases of members of the public being targeted by mad poisoners intending to do murder. But I also alluded to the fact that there have been recorded cases of people aiming to do harm to their families. Oh no, well, this already sounds disturbing. <laughs> to be honest, if it wasn't a little bit disturbing, we wouldn't be talking about it on an episode of Something Wicked. Yeah, fair point well made. <laughs> now, of course, the term the Candyman has some pre-existing horror associations, not least the Candyman film series based on Clive Barker's horror story, the Forbidden. I'll be honest, I have always thought it's a really misleading title to those films, <laughs> The Candyman. I mean, I get there's honeycombs and bees involved, yeah. but there is a distinct lack of proper serious candy involved in that franchise. <laughs> like, I want a gingerbread house, you know, with candy canes. I, I recognise it's not really the point, but still. Yeah, oh no, I, mean, I completely agreed. But anyway, we're not talking about the Candyman film franchise, nor are we talking about the quote-unquote Candyman killer, Dean Call who was a really nasty man indeed. Is he the Houston murders guy? He is. And dear listener, if you're unfamiliar with Dean Call, he's a really gross character. He was a paedophile, also known as the Pied Piper, active in the 1970s. He was famous for abducting, torturing, raping and murdering teenage boys, at least 29 confirmed victims. But his moniker of Candyman came simply from the fact that for about 10 years, he also worked in his parents, then his own sweet-making business. So not terribly relevant to Halloween or Three Ravens Haunting Season, it has to be said. A deeply unpleasant and really quite horrific case, though. Oh, definitely, yeah. But also one where, honestly, it's just too up and down bleak for me to want to talk about it. Instead, the man I want to talk about is Ronald Clark O'Brien, who was executed by lethal injection on the 31st of March, 1984. Okay, so we have a name, Ronald Clark O'Brien. Mm. And what did he do to earn the moniker of the Candyman? Well, this is quite an interesting story, so let me spin you a bit of a yarn. I can't expect no less. Please begin. <laughs> okay, well, Ronald Clark O'Brien was born in 1944 in Texas, growing up to become an optician, very active in his church, where he was a deacon. He sang in the choir and ran the local bus program for the elderly. So, from the outside he appeared to be a thoroughly upstanding citizen uh-huh only only ronald was very 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 badly in debt interesting so in 10 years leading up to his crimes ronald had burned through a whopping 21 jobs i may and in this time he'd basically taken out loads and loads of loans like over half a million dollars in loans, which were starting to default by the time he committed his crimes. And so he was in this very precarious position of being on the verge of having his car, home, all his properties repossessed, having to declare bankruptcy. And he was also on the verge of being fired from his most recent job as an optician. So things weren't looking terribly good for Ronald. Yeah, it's a bit of a pickle he'd got himself into there. Quite, but Ronald had a plan which was to take out very large life insurance policies on his children. Oh, no. Yeah. So he took out insurance policies on both his son, 
Timothy, who was eight at the time, and his daughter Elizabeth, who was five years old. With his genius plan, by which I mean utterly barbaric and incredibly stupid plan, being to kill both of his children and cash in on the life insurance. So their policies were intended to almost clear him of his debt. And, you know, after that, I, I guess he'd just carry on being church deacon and what have you. How horrendous. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. And so this all came to a head on Halloween night, 1974, when Timothy, Ronald's son, became incredibly unwell after consuming a tube of pixie sticks he had acquired while trick-or-treating. Now, we don't have pixie sticks in England, but Eleanor, are you familiar with the idea of a pixie stick? I've had pixie sticks oh, in America. Oh, have Yeah, a lot of e-numbers. Yeah, so I presume they're a bit like a tube of sherbet. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, it's kind of a straw full of powdered sugary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we have got a similar thing, I think, in England. But, um, the pixie sticks are super, super sugary sure. and full of delicious chemicals. But, yeah, from what I understand, you sort of tear the end off this straw, tip the powder into your mouth and yum, 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 delicious sweet treat. Yeah, a little bit like a sherbet dip dab. Sure. But I think it's coarser. Okay, okay. But I'm guessing the pixie sticks that Timothy ate that night were not so delicious. <laughs> well, and this is totally messed up, but here we go. So Timothy had been taken trick-or-treating by his dad, Ronald, along with his sister Elizabeth and three other children who were friends of the family. And each of the children who went out with Ronald that evening came home with a poisoned tube of pixie sticks. Wait, so it wasn't just Timothy? No. So Timothy came home with Ronald and ate the contents of his pixie stick and was dead within 30 minutes because the pixie stick contained potassium cyanide. Whoa. I mean, cyanide is incredibly deadly mm. poison. Famously, the Nazis carried cyanide pills in case of capture, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So Hitler and Eva Braun and their children committed suicide by use of cyanide, as did Alan and Turing, the Jonestown cult. I mean, it's very deadly stuff invented in the 1940s. But it was widely available to purchase in the 1980s, including through chemical supply stores in, say, Houston, Texas, for example. So wait, did Ronald Clark O'Brien literally just buy potassium cyanide over the counter? He did indeed. So basically what he did was buy some pixie sticks, open them up, blend the kind of powdered sugar up with the potassium cyanide, then he stapled the ends of the pixie sticks Staples? Yeah. Are pixie sticks normally sealed with staples? No, not at all. Oh boy, a real criminal mastermind then. <laughs> well, no, obviously, but... What he then did is take this group of children out trick-or-treating, then basically he slipped the poisoned pixie sticks into each of their collections of Halloween candy for the evening then took the other children back to their parents' houses, took his own kids home, and encouraged Timothy to try the pixie stick. What a monstrous human being. Mm. And wait, hold on. So there were then three other children in the neighbourhood with these poisoned pixie sticks. Yep. And basically, the only thing that saved those kids were Ronald's staples. <laughs> because the staples were so difficult to open that although some of the other children tried to get into the pixie sticks, they literally couldn't because the staples were too difficult to prize apart. What the hell? I know. Even more macabre, actually. Once Timothy had died, which happened like midway to the hospital, the police immediately notified the other families who had been trick-or-treating with O'Brien and a kind of panic started all, th all through the area. But anyway, those parents immediately went and found the pixie sticks in their children's Halloween 
candies. Although in one case, one of the families couldn't find the pixie stick and discovered to their horror that their son had taken the pixie stick to bed to eat under the covers and had fallen asleep with it in his hand. No, that is so horrendous. What a nightmare. Yeah, genuinely. And when these pixie sticks were tested, each was found to contain enough potassium cyanide to kill two adult male human beings, let alone children. So it was O'Brien's plan to poison his own kids and also the children of three other families to cover up his crime. Thank goodness it didn't succeed. Mm. And well, thank goodness for staples, I suppose, of all things. (laughs) Yeah. So was this just an open and shut case then? Did the police arrest him on the spot? Well, no, because O'Brien said that he'd taken the children out trick-or-treating, so the police went with him back along the route, checking door-to-door where he'd visited. And the house where O'Brien said the children had acquired the pixie sticks, which O'Brien said had been given by a hairy arm leaning around the door. So, you know, he said he didn't even see the face of the person. Oh, ridiculous. (laughs) But that house, unfortunately for O'Brien and his terrible, terrible alibi, was inhabited by an air traffic controller who'd been at work the evening previous, returning home at 11pm. So the finger, after that was discovered, was pointed squarely at O'Brien. And I presume then it came to light that he'd taken out those life insurance policies. Not only that, but O'Brien had already called the insurance companies asking how he made claims on Timothy's life insurance policy. And, of course, the police just went to the places where you could buy potassium cyanide in Texas nearby with a photo of O'Brien and that was it slam dunk so he was convicted pretty quickly after that I'm guessing yeah I mean the jury in the case took just 46 minutes (laughs) to convict him and he was given the death penalty his last meal was a T-bone steak well done which is a whole other crime in my view along with french fries and ketchup with a steak no corn on the cob sweet peas salad iced tea and a Boston cream pie for dessert so hold on you said this was 1984 1984 when he was executed yes and the press went mad for the whole thing calling him the candy man and the man who killed Halloween and outside the prison where he was executed protesters threw sweets at the prison guards and police which is kind of a fun and macabre touch. But did the murders take place in 1984? No, he actually killed Timothy in 1974, meaning the whole case and the media coverage fed into the advent of the satanic panic. With one key irony being that this guy was very churchy, he was Uh, a deacon, very involved in his church. I mean, so are and were a lot of America's most notable serial killers or attempted serial killers. BTK being one of the most famous examples along with Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and on and on and on. So the Church of Satan gets this terrible rap, but actually, it's very often Christians. Going back to O'Brien, the Candyman, doesn't his case make the kind of paranoia about mad poisoners on Halloween at least a little bit legitimate? The fact he he did what he did means surely there is actually some justification in all the talk of razor blades and toffee apples and poison sweets and so on. Well, I suppose if you kind of squint and turn your head sideways and maybe have a very active imagination, possibly. But really, in truth, all the fuss seems, to me at least, from from the reading that I've done about this, to be a bit more cynical than that. 
because many, many news outlets and magazines have whipped up fear about mad poisoners. So Newsweek, ABC News, The Washington Post, The Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Tribune and many other news organisations have run lots of high profile stories about the dangers of poisoned Halloween candy and mad poisoners, creating an enduring sense that strangers out there are kind of just lying in wait in their droves, ready to murder children. Do you think the articles are paid for by dentists? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> just a thought to really, you know, put children off sweets. <laughs> of course, you know, it is an appealing idea. You can see where it works. You know, you have Halloween, which is already scary, associated mm. with horror movies and ghosts and murderers and so on, especially Care of Cinema. Yep. Thank you. And then you have the combination of sweets and candy being so appealing, blended with the possibility of pain and death. Yeah, yeah. You can see why people almost want to believe in the urban legend. Oh, definitely. And, you know, we have all these precautions these days about families being advised to only accept sweets in wrappers or packaging in case they've been tampered with and so on. But come Halloween this year, any claims made about the likelihood of a mad poisoner being on the loose are effectively zero, whereas the cases of hoaxes about mad poisoners are actually incredibly well recorded. By hoaxes, what do you mean? Well, there have been a number of incidents where children have actually poisoned their own sweets, pouring bleach on them or tucking razor blades into candy apples or what have you. Um, yeah, Also, chocolate bars, razor blades in, in candy bars. So they've gone then bleating to their parents saying, oh, well, they've been targeted by a mad poisoner. But in all the cases that have ever been investigated of this happening, it turns out that the children themselves were responsible and it's happened over 90 times. So it's more likely that a child will poison their own Halloween candy for attention than it will have been poisoned by someone else. Yep, literally. Like wow. that, that only, creeps. The only case we know where a child died from poison trick-or-treat sweets is the O'Brien Candyman case and it was his own son. As for recorded cases of strangers doing something similar, there are literally no recorded cases. You see, I'm now afraid that in saying this, you've opened up the possibility that this Halloween, the first ever case will arrive <laughs> no. of a mad poisoner on the loose on Halloween. 2023 could be the year. No. And if it is, how awful would that be? Oh, it would be truly, genuinely horrifying. But I'm going to put my faith in the people of the world who open their doors to trick-or-treaters. Because if we flip this whole episode on its head a bit, it can hopefully serve as a reminder that generally people, especially strangers, are really, really nice on Halloween and give out sweets to children because it's a fun tradition which basically spreads joy. I love giving out sweets on yeah. Halloween. I like seeing all their costumes. Oh, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I guess if you're a creep who's deep in debt, though, maybe <laughs> you might think differently. I mean, yeah, perhaps watch out for Texas-based opticians who are also church deacons in 1974, especially if you're their son. Uh, but otherwise, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that people should be less afraid of mad poisoners and actually more afraid of diabetes. <laughs> Don't bring diabetes into this, Martin. We were having fun. Well, that's a silent killer, Eleanor. You know, almost 11% of adults, I believe, that have diabetes. Over 2 million people died of diabetes last year. Blimey, it's way more dangerous than indebted opticians. Well, you knows it. Anyway, that's that. The Candyman, Ronald Clark O'Brien. Well, that was incredibly interesting. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure, as always. And, of course, if you're enjoying the Three Ravens podcast and would like to support us and access exclusive content, as well as all of our episodes ad-free, then do please consider signing up for 
our Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month via patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. Our new film club episode about the 2015 folk horror hit The Witch was released on Patreon just today. And we'll, of course, be back on Monday with our final original ghost story double bill for Haunting Season 2023. Mm-hmm. Plus, we'll have our Super Star Wayne Halloween special on the 31st, all about the history and folklore of Halloween. So there's that to look forward to as well. Of course, do please follow us on social media via facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast or on twitter via at three ravens pod and if you're carving a pumpkin this year then do please send us photos of your finished carved pumpkin along with any other thoughts and feedback to three ravens podcast at gmail.com for a chance of winning a limited edition three ravens haunting season mug the mugs are so cool mm. i do like the long sleeve t-shirt oh and the tote bag yeah. is great oh, i like all of it <laughs> check out the merch on three ravenspodcast.com forward slash shop everyone please until next time though while our tale of terror has gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle till you're out of the woods our theme song is the traditional folk ballad three ravens performed by eleanor conlon and ben harbour and our logo is by ollie james dare the three ravens podcast is a rust and stardust production written and produced by me martin fox thanks for listening God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man With a down, derry, 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 down, down When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.